ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The central coast of New South Wales is dotted with holiday houses, resorts, touristy seaside villages, with knick-knack shops and Devonshire tea rooms. But these towns used to be so completely different. They were once the homes of people who came from all over the world to catch fish, to harvest oysters and prawns, to man the lighthouses and build boats. John Clark says that they were a wonderful group of people who were free of many of the dilemmas of modern life, but of course they had a set of their own dilemmas to take care of. Some of them made their fortunes from the sea, others spent their hard-scrabble lives barely getting by, but at least they had the sea and the air and the land all around them. John Clark is a fishing fanatic and a local historian who's well known to ABC listeners in parts of New South Wales by the nickname of Stinker Clark. And quite frankly, when someone suggests a guest with the name Stinker, how on earth could I say no to that? Indeed, hello, John. <laughs> Hi, Richard. Where does the Stinker name come from? Can we just get that out of the way? To begin I thought with? that would be the first yeah. question. Well, it, it, there's a bit of an anticlimax here, really, because 27 years ago, I was travelling with the editor of the local newspaper in Port Stephens, Keith Campbell, we were going to, he and I played in the same cricket team. And he suggested to me that I may be able to write a fishing article in the local paper uh, once a month. And I said, look, I really do think I could probably do it once a week. That was 27 years ago. And I've written an article every Thursday for the last 27 years. I haven't missed one. (laughs) And when I started writing this article, I said to Keith, well, I'm not going to write it as John Clark because quite frankly, who really wants to know? But I thought now if I make up some sort of a name (laughs) that and someone, and and it's a name you don't forget real quickly. So uh, there's plenty of uh, barrers and snappers and, and all sorts of names to, for fishing people out there. So I thought, I'll be stinker <laughs> so that no one knows who's writing this article. But it's difficult to live in a community the size of Nelson Bay to get away with that sort of stuff for too long. And I was teaching school at the time and I still recall the day, this is many, many years ago, this little girl in year seven, she come up to me sort of in a secretive sort of way and she said, my dad thinks you're stinker. And I said, I said, well, keep it quiet, will you? I said, if you call me Mr. Stinker, things will be good. And she used to always smile as she walked past as if we got a secret, haven't we? <laughs> so that's how it all started. We made it up. Your secret's out now. <laughs> it's you you, you confess to being Stinker Clark. <laughs> so it was a name you seized for yourself rather That's than right. having it thrust upon you, which is a good thing indeed. I, I want to begin by talking with you about Broughton Island, which is an island off the coast of New South Wales. It's just it's north of Newcastle, isn't it? And a bit a bit further out. To begin with, tell me why you thought that was something that you wanted to capture, this this story. Why was this important for you to write about? When I arrived in in uh, Port Stephens, end of 1974, being a keen fisherman and coming from Tweed Heads and being from a recreational fishing family, there was always that place that's just out of reach that you must get to because, you know, it just offers so much. And I'd heard stories about this place, of how the fishing was, an iconic snapper spot and everything else. And so it always teased me, as I could see it from where I lived. So I made inquiries and, and finally... Uh, I got to visit 
um, brought in Ireland. So it was. It was. This was Shangri La in your imagination before you even went there. That's right. It? But That's you could right. see it from where you were I living. Can, eight nautical miles outside the heads from Port Stephens, and it's on. Sits on the horizon. And I thought, oh, I've got to go there. So it inflamed your imagination. Certainly. So tell me about that first visit to Broughton Island. Well, it, I, I only recently returned and I've been going there for over 30 years and I still get exactly the same feeling that I experienced the, the first time I stepped onto it. And I always felt like that there was someone watching from up a high, up on high or I had that feeling that there were people there. There was no one there. But I just had a feeling that there was someone around and it was um, the hairs on the back of my neck just sort of stuck up and I thought, golly, this place has got something about it. it so, you, so you got that the moment you stepped off the boat first for the step, first time? First step. The sense, the sense of some kind of presence there. That's on right. The island. Yep. And that idea had never occurred to you until you reached this place. I've been, I've been on other places, but this is the only place that I ever got that feeling. How did you spend the next few days after you first arrived off oh, that boat back in the seventies? I couldn't. I couldn't get enough of the place. I mean, it's three kilometres long and two kilometres wide, and it's got beautiful, beautiful beaches and high peaks. And and uh, and for a geologist or someone who's interested uh, in uh, rock structures, there's everything there. Shapes you can't explain, and bird life, and and it was just so much happening. So you just wandered around. For just a while. walked around, and fishing then becomes secondary to me. I thought I'll I'll go fishing when I've got time, but at the moment I want to find out about as much about this place as I possibly could. And then I started to hear the stories from some of the older fellows on the island. They said, oh, "Well, if you're so interested in this place, you need to know this, and then you need to know that." And then I just thought, "This is something special." Tell me about when you finally finished exploring the island and gone into all the caves and been up to the top of the highest peak there in, in Broughton Island. When you finally got into the water with a mask and snorkel for the first time, what happened then? Well, everything was there, Richard. It was just a, a life. There was life everywhere you looked. I don't think there was a second where some creature didn't pass by my, uh, when I was snorkeling. The huge whiting and the groper, they were all, everything seemed to be friendly. I mean, it's not a real good thing for a fish to get too close to any. But they just, I don't know, they didn't seem to care too much about my presence. And I just swam around and looked over the ledges into the deep holes and Oh, it was just a, a lesson in life. There are giant rays in that water, stingrays, manta rays. Are, are, are some of them fierce or territorial or are they placid? No, they're not fierce at all. They're beautiful big creatures. Well, the biggest ones were sort of like the, the bonnet of a VW. They're thumping great things. <laughs> and, and no, they'll actually eat out of your hand. Well, you mean literally eat out of your hand? Most certainly. You can hand feed manta hand, rays? Hand, not they're man, not manta rays, they're big stingrays. The, the manta rays are the one that comes out of the water, remember? You mean like the ones that killed Steve Irwin, that kind of creature? That's the one. Right. You can, you, you can hand feed that? that yeah, yeah, yes. No, they're not, they're not nasty at all. They're, they're pl very placid, beautiful creatures. Is quite ugly, but beautiful. <laughs> so swimming around there, you see all this kind of marine life there, and then you began to fishing. You began to fish from a rock. What happened when you started fishing on that first day of fishing? Well, again, I didn't know quite what to expect, but I, I walked to one of the extremes early in the morning, about half past four in the morning. We took off, pitch dark, but I had been told it was a good spot, and the, and we cast into a what looked like a reasonable spot. And the snapper in there would just, the place was full of snapper, big snapper, 
Well, I ended up with two, I think, but I must must have lost. I lost a hell of a lot more than I caught. But I just thought, how long's this been going on? Well, that's a very interesting question because probably a jolly long time. You, you said that you were trembling as all this happened. You yeah. Were, it sounds like you're in some kind of stra- kind of restless ecstasy <laughs> on this island. I mean, I, and it, it, it just it makes me sort of want to be there right now. Yeah. The way you talk about it, I I, I, mean, I don't know if I've ever had that experience in nature, and I, yeah. I'd love to experience it. Uh, and because there's so much happening, and this was near a place called the Looking Glass. Now, the Looking Glass is quite an extraordinary landform in that it has a it's a sort of a rocky mountain, and it has a crack right through it from one side to the other and on a very very calm day when you make sure that there are no skin divers swimming through this crack you can actually motor and i have done in stink pot which is my 11 foot boat which i've towed to broughton island on a few occasions to motor through this crack in this huge rocky outcrop in the middle of the ocean and it's it's cold in there and there's water dripping down on top of you and the, you can hear the sea and the hiss and yes it's exciting given that you always felt this presence on the island and you still feel it today what's it like to spend the night there oh well then of course the mutton birds come out to play and do they make a noise it's sort of like a a baby who's in pain that sort of a noise a wailing noise and it's quite well eerie and once you first hear it you think what on earth is that what does it sound like can you imitate it at all? Well, not really. I mean, if we had a baby and sort of... <laughs> no, no, it's just a, an eerie sound that someone sounds like, gee, they need attention. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then, of course, they, they um, fly towards light at night and so they bang into... When you're staying out there, if you've got a light on, there's a big chance they'll bang into you. And they're everywhere. And they, big, they dig into the, to the sandy hills there like rabbits. So there's like rabbit warrens all over the place, which there used to be. There's no rabbits there anymore. But the, the uh, mutton birds are there in big numbers. You've written this book on, on the history and the character of Broughton Island. Were Aboriginal people ever settled there? Oh, most certainly. There is... Plenty of evidence to suggest that they, that uh, Broughton Island was very important to them. Spear sharpening sites and middens. Uh, the suggestion is that they come across from the mainland in canoes, but there is no real evidence. Well, it's very difficult to tell whether, in fact, they lived there for long periods of times or they only arrived for ceremonial reasons. But the the depth of the the spear sharpening sites would have taken many, many years to to have rubbed that stone as deep as it is. So that indicates that that they were there for a long, long period of time. Who were the first non-Aboriginal people to come there to build settlements of a kind on on Broughton Island? Well, that's a great question. I'd love to know the first person who was non-Aboriginal to walk on that island. I've researched it upside down and back the front, and I did read that there were suggestions that Portuguese in the 16th century may well have have, uh, visited, and there are old maps that um, suggest that that may well have happened, but it's not uh, enough evidence to convince me. But it makes me think. Now, after the Portuguese, whether they were or were not there, then the the Chinese, the Chinese were very influential in, in fishing early in Port Stephens because they drifted in from the, the gold fields because the, they didn't find the gold that they expected to find. So the Chinese arrived and they visited. And then in the 1890s, the Italians, which, which is very interesting because they stayed on the island and 
caught lobsters, they trapped lobsters, but they never ever left the island and never ever come to ports into Port Stephens. They were dropped off by passing boats and picked up by passing boats, but they never ever ventured anywhere else. Following the Italians were the Greeks and they uh, arrived, well actually the, the European arrived there, oh gosh it's difficult to put an actual, your finger on it, but in 1906 the French arrived to eradicate rabbits, which were on the mainland and causing a major, major problem. Now, it's funny you should bring this up because some years ago, we, we had the story of the nephew of Louis Pasteur who came to Australia from the Pasteur Institute who was going to pick up the reward from the New South Wales government to eradicate rabbits. Now, this was another guy from the Pasteur Institute, wasn't it? Was- no, no, same fellow. Dr. Danzig, he was related to, to Louis Pasteur and come over from the Institute in Paris and he was supposed to have been employed by the state government and they rejected his uh, his claim but it was picked up by the pastoralist associations. They said if the state government won't bring you here, we will because we've got rabbits running all over our properties destroying our grassland. So they brought him to Australia. It's the same fellow. So they, they, they set him up in Broughton Island as, as, his, as a kind of laboratory then to, to to see how we could eradicate the rabbits? Exactly. And did it work? No. (laughs) (laughs) The Frenchman left, but the rabbits didn't. (laughs) So after a while, there was a kind of an Australian settlement there, uh, well, Anglo-Australian settlement there and a Greek-Australian settlement there on the other side of the island, and they had their own fishing uh, shacks there. How did they get on those two different uh, communities on the island? Uh, Not too well. And it wasn't the Greeks' fault. It was the Australians' fault. And again, this is only you know, from what I've gathered, there were certain uh, members of the, of the, in the Australian, uh, which was called East Harbour or Esmeralda. That's where the Australians settled and the uh, Greeks settled in North Harbour or Little Salonica, which re- remind them of Greece. And there was very little interaction uh, over there. The Greeks worked very, very hard. You know, <laughs> there wasn't that real sort of friendliness that that had that it happened later through the years. But originally, no, they didn't trust each other too much. Some of these the stories of the characters on these islands are just mind blowing. These stories. <laughs> Let's first of all talk about Kerosene Tin Jim. Who was he? Ah, uh, Demetrius Karagiorgis, and he's my hero. Unfortunately, he died before I, I got to meet him. I'd love to have met him. Uh, he was a very popular, big, strong man. Lived on the island for over 40 years. He, How strong was he? Oh, the stories of what he could lift. Uh, you know, it took three fellows to push his boat. Well, he could sort of do it by himself, quite simply, through, uh, pull it up the sand. But um, he was a real character. Where did he get the uh, a kerosene tin, tin nickname from? Well, uh, Aussies has never been really patient when it comes to attempting to learn how to pronounce surnames of our overseas people who have moved here from overseas. So easier for Australians to say kerosene Jim, kerosene tin Jim. It's not, though. I think it's easier to say Jim Karagiorgis than it is kerosene tin Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Demetrius Karagiorgis, they thought, no, we're not going to say that. So let's call him, just let's call him kerosene tin. Okay. Uh, And... uh, what was his appetite like? Massive. Yes, he could eat anything that wriggled, was sort of tossed into a pot, including rabbits that hadn't been skinned or anything else. <laughs> and it was just bubbled away. And one of the stories that I did hear that someone needed a feed, he invited them in for some rabbit stew and he ladled out uh, 
this big bowl of, of rabbit stew for one of the visitors on the island. And he said, how lucky are you? He said, you got two heads. Well, the rabbit's head was sitting there staring at this visitor <laughs> from the plate. And, and even more frightening, there was grass in the between the teeth of the rabbit. <laughs> oh, no, thanks. I'm, I'm not, not all that peckish after all. Yeah, that's right. I've lost my appetite. <laughs> <laughs> what happened between this guy and his goat that was named William? Ah, William. Well, William made a fatal <laughs> error. I mean, the, the toilet facilities over there are primitive, to say the least. And Jim, his... Um, toilet was made by uh, nature, which you just sort of bend over the, the cliff face and, and, uh, and back onto the cliff face and do everything that needed to be done over the cliff into the surging sea. <laughs> well, what happened, of course, on this one particular occasion, because you're very vulnerable you're in very that position. You're very vulnerable in that too. position. That's yeah, right. it's, it's not sort of something you can defend <laughs> yourself from. Anyway, William, for some unknown reason, had a nasty streak in him and he butted Jim in that, and Jim went straight <laughs> over the edge into the drink. Well, that annoyed Jimmy quite a bit. And so when he did finally catch William, he cut off his horns, maybe to teach him a lesson not to do it again. Well, Elizabeth, the, uh, the island's goat, female goat, and Elizabeth and, and uh, William had something going until William lost his horns and Elizabeth lost interest in him and, and poor old uh, William passed away. Probably broken heart, I should think. <laughs> I don't know whether life will cry over that story. That's, that's fascinating. There were stories of a ghost on Broaden uh, Island yes. as well. What was the story of that? Well, the Greeks were very superstitious. And uh, one of the Greek men drowned. And on that particular day for years to come, they would all leave the island. They wouldn't stay on the island on that night. Why not? They were frightened. Frightened of the ghost or what might happen to them. and Did they ever claim to have seen a ghost? No, well, no, not no. But they knew he was there. They knew he was there? No, they knew he was there, but they never saw him, no. They could just feel it. I thought it might have felt a bit, little bit myself. Like, I mean, I can see quite a few ghosts hovering around over there. There's, you've got such a long history and you just can't... There's answers that will never, ever be given because you, you don't know the answers. Another fascinating aspect of Broughton Island, just off there, the coast of New South Wales, is that for some years it harboured a man who was thought to be a communist spy. What was the story of that man? Ah, yes. Well, Wally Clayton's the man's name, and his wife's name was Peaceful Clayton, and she was born on the day that peace was declared at the end of World War I, and they were devout communists, both of them, very proud communists, and at the time, this is the 1950s, uh, Wally was working for Doc Evatt in the offices in Canberra as a secretary in there when Menzies was the Prime Minister of Australia. And this is the time of the Petrov affair, you may recall. Yes, followed by the bill to outlaw the Communist Party. That's, all, that's it. And that's how there was plenty of heat on in Canberra. And they were starting to search for, for Wally, who in fact was a spy. And, and any research into the man will determine that his name was Claude, K-L-O-D. That was his, his uh, code name. Anyway, a spy for the Soviet Union. Uh, a spy for the communist countries. So, so we're led to believe, and so research tells us. And what was he doing on Broughton Island? Then? Hiding. Hiding? 
Well, he just he just taken off. Well, it got the heat. It got a bit too hot in uh, for him in Canberra, and and sort of uh, it just become uncomfortable. So he then took up a uh, a professional fishing license and ended up on Broughton Island. And uh, it was just um, he never really put much produce through the through the um, co-fisherman's co-op. He didn't catch much. But the story goes that he used to spend a great deal of his time out on the horizon. Um, what happened on the horizon, we're not real sure about. But again, the Australians with their weird sense of, uh, I guess, naming, he was known as Molotov. <laughs> Did he ever get caught? Um, no. I think they just forgot about it. And he lived a happy life ever after. I think they said, oh, well, you know. He never tried to actually hide the fact that he was there, although he was a very difficult man to photograph. He seemed to always slip around the corner just as you were sort of focusing the lens. <laughs> in 1955, there was a flood in uh, the Hunter and it went through Maitland. Tell me the story of Clara the Cow, please. <laughs> yes, Clara Bell, yes. Well, I actually, someone contacted me and said she might well have come from up around Miller's Forest, way up into the upper reaches. But in 1955 was a very big flood and flushed right through Maitland and up the Hunter River and way, way out to sea. Well, there were f fellows fishing out three mile off Broughton Island at the time. No Noel Connell was the man's name. Three miles out at sea? Yeah, three right, miles off Broughton the coast. Island. Right, off, yeah, the, off the island, right. Off Broughton Island. And Noel Connell was fishing there. Uh, with a friend, and they noticed as they looked out to see uh, some weird sort of a shape that was sort of, uh, they couldn't figure out what it was. So they upped anchor to go out and investigate what this thing was because everything else was floating past, pumpkins and, you know, creatures that had died and drowned and all sorts of doors and all of it. And it was a cow. Well, imagine the shock that they got. They wrapped the anchor out rope around the cow and strapped her to the side of their boat. She was still alive. Barely. While, while, at, while out at sea. At that, that far out at sea. How, how had she stayed alive, do you think? No. How, she paddled I mean, or, or? And even, no, well, she must have done, but she didn't, she wasn't in a swimming shape when they found her. She was sort of gasping and laying on the side and probably another half an hour and she would not have survived. They got her right at the end, but she'd come from the Hunter and even from the Hunter River to to Port Stephens, to Broughton Island is a jolly long way. But that's the way the current took her. Anyway, these fellows took her to the mainland, who took her into Esmeralda Bay. Towed her in. Right. Towed her in. Towed her in onto, the, onto Esmeralda Bay on Broughton Island, where this little community of fishermen saw her coming. Well, you can imagine the shock on their faces. This fellow turned up with a cow strapped to the side <laughs> of his boat. And, and imagine how... I've often wondered how Clarabelle felt when she finally got her hooves on solid earth. Wouldn't that have been wonderful? So once she got on solid earth on Esmeralda, yeah. uh, did, did they want to keep her or get rid of her? Well, I mean, you know, they let her loose and she wandered around, but then she got a little bit too sort of, um, well, outwore her welcome. And and she did things that cows do, and the others said, "Look, we're not too impressed." Like by what? This. Kind of, what kind of things was she doing? Well, their toilet habits aren't all that great, <laughs> and and they and they're, she was an inquisitive creature. They tell me, and so so what happened? They all decided that they would strap her onto the boat and take her to Shoal Bay, all the way back to Shoal Bay. 
So that's what happened. They strapped her to the boat and off they went back. And I don't know what she thought about that. <laughs> but anyway, back she went to Shoal Bay where they let her loose and she wandered around the Shoal Bay because Noel Connell at that stage had the fish and chip shop beside the local pub. And so he let her loose to wander around his fish and chip shop. Well, the patrons at the Shoal Bay pub there weren't all that impressed either. She actually stuck her head through the window and licked one of the patrons on the face, which is, <laughs> which is again, which is again not your what you expect. So they thought Chow Bay is not a place for cows. <laughs> so they put her on a, they took her out to Anna Bay, which has got beautiful big paddocks out there and fences and everything else, and uh, she lived there happily ever after. And what, I is, thought, it, is a dairy cow? Yes, and I'm told she had a couple of calves, but. That's not the end of the story. I thought it was. But another one, a friend of mine, Kenny Barry, who was a retired lobster man at Finger Bay, he said, there's more to that story. I said, how so? He said, well, she was a magnificent milker, something to be very proud of. And she went to the Maitland show. This is after her ordeal. They took her to the Maitland show. And she won the Best Milker Award. I don't know whether this is true or not. I really don't care, but it's just great. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, when the judge started to wrap the ribbon around her, she had flashbacks of maybe of getting strapped to the side of the boat and she took off and, and, ran, and ran, knocked the tents down. Everyone jumped over the side and this bloke said... He said, the cow, your cow's mad. And he said, well, so would you be if you knew what happened to her. <laughs> Clarabelle, cow of action. <laughs> Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. This isn't actually where you grew up, is it, John? Tell me about where you did grow up. I'm uh, born and bred in Tweed Heads. And uh, that was a wonderful place to be brought up in the 50s and 60s. And my father was very much involved with fishing, as was my whole family, recreational fishing. And he was a rod maker, a fishing rod maker, and worked as an assistant, a shop assistant in a bait and tackle shop in Tweed Heads and sports store. Were you on the New South Wales or the Queensland side of the border there? About 50 metres from Queensland in New South Wales. Is there a strong antagonism there from people on either side of the border like there is in Albury-Wodonga? Well, there was. My grandmother, we lived uh, in the big house with the extended family in a street, Boundary Street, which was the one that fringed. the. the you can't get any closer to the Queensland than Boundary Street. And my mother, my grandmother, a lovely lady she was, um, and never had a nasty bone in her body, but she, she would um, always take all the rubbish that she gathered in a bucket and walk across what was called no man's land, this area between, and tip everything into Queensland. <laughs> she tipped the slops bucket into Queensland. Yeah, she said, they, they can handle this better than we can. <laughs> Oh, you, you, you mentioned there your dad was a, a rod maker and, uh, and a keen fisherman himself. How much time did you spend on the boat with your dad? And, and how did that help your relationship father-son-wise? Well, I, it was only that we got a boat later in life. Uh, we used to spend 
in my really young years, I, I'd sat on the bar of the push bike. Remember those old pushies? And, and he could sit on the bar and I had a little wooden seat on there and I would sit on that and my father and I would pedal to where we were going fishing. And they're probably my fondest memories of my early fishing experiences. But later in, in life, I think I was about 11 and the family purchased a boat, which was, oh, dear me, it was a wonderful thing. It was a, about a 12-foot old timber boat that had a lot of tar on it. And you couldn't get it out of the water because it was just too heavy, so it stayed in the water. And I figured out that if I had a beach umbrella, I could go with the wind wherever I really rode it. I used like to a wear, sail? A sail, yeah. And it would, all I'd need, I'd hold the umbrella up and the wind would blow me pretty much to wherever I wanted to go. But it worked. All the time. <laughs> all the time. And then, and then you'd work it so that the tide would then push you back to where you come from. So you could go for three or four kilometres and not row a stroke. <laughs> How about that, that act of fishing though, when you're doing that side by side with someone like your dad? Yep. I think men, men often need this kind of excuse to talk to one another. You need to put, put men in a situation uh, where they'll be sitting side by side. And is the fact that you're kind of trapped together in the boat, does that kind of facilitate things? In the same boat. Yes, well, and, and interestingly enough, you don't have to talk. You don't need to communicate by talking. You communicate by just being there and going about your business. And it's just lovely. And I did this with my son, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience to be in the same boat, out in the never-never, no one else is around and you just, you've only got each other. And that was just, that's just a great feeling. You graduated with a dip ed in physical education so you could become a PE teacher. Where were you first sent as a PE teacher? Oh, golly. My first appointment was Gilgandra High School. Western New South Wales. Western New South Wales. And I thought when I arrived there, I was at Dodge City or Tombstone. <laughs> I'd never, never been in the bush. And I'd arrived on the uh, Brisbane to Melbourne Express and the driver woke me up and he said, you're here, mate. You know, this is you for the next few years. Well, it was so hot and dusty and there was no water in the Castle Ray River. And I thought, well, this is going to be something special. And it was. It was. Nowhere to fish. No, How'd no, get on? dry as a bone. Well, I went into the Tattersalls Hotel one day and I said, are there any fishermen here? Well, they must have all been listening to me with one ear because they all said, yes, we all are. So when a, a fortnight later we'd organised a trip, you'd go out to Warren or out onto the Macquarie River or onto the marshlands out there. There was always some water you could find, but it was more of a social gathering rather than a fishing trip. Fishing was secondary. How did you meet Ella, the woman who was to become your wife? Uh, well, Ella was working in the bank at the time in Gilgandra, and I was the new PE teacher in town. She sounded like she's pretty exotic for Gilgandra, wasn't she? Well, most certainly. Um, Ella was from a Russian family, and neither... Well, m her mother could speak broken English, but her father couldn't speak English at all. How did a Russian family end up in Gilgandra? Well, they, uh, they left the war-torn country and ended up in uh, immigrant centre in Melbourne, and then they looked for jobs to find for these people, and Ella's mother secured a job as the cleaner at the Colli pub between Gilgandra and Warren on the Warren Road, uh, which for an engineer, as she was, was um, not probably what the job that she could handle, but being in a new country, they would do anything they could. And then the father, Yakovna, he had to find her first. I mean, and if you're looking 
for people in Australia, the last place you'd look is Collide Pub. But that's where she was. So then he moved out there and he's a taxidermist and worked in leather. A taxidermist? Yeah. In Gilgandra? Yeah. Well, he ended up becoming a bootmaker and a very successful one because he was a perfectionist, a quite a brilliant man. And so, and Ella was actually, she was born in, the fir- in her first year in Australia. She was born in Australia. So then you went to uh, WA for a bit and came back. And that's, that's how you ended up on the New South Wales coast for the first time. Where did they put you? Well, Nelson Bay High School. I, I went to uh, West Australia with a friend of mine who'd just come back from Vietnam. And we travelled over and I went to university over there for three years. And then I was still bonded to the New South Wales Department of Education. Oh, right. That's back in that old scheme. Yes, yes. right. You were bonded, weren't you, as a teacher? And some people believed in it. Some didn't. I mean, you know, catch me if you can sort of thing. But uh, I believed that, that uh, I was still bonded and I owed the department something. So back I came and I said, where am I going to? Anyway, after some uh, toing and froing, they said, Nelson Bay High School. I said, where, where is that? I didn't have a clue. Did not have a clue. And they said, it's a little fishing village north of Newcastle. I said, put me down. That'll do me. What were the kids you taught there like? Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And I just loved teaching it. I was very excited and uh, and I'm very enthusiastic and just enjoyed their company. And and it was just a wonderful uh, teaching experience. For me. There were a lot of Aboriginal kids at your school, weren't there? Well, not many Aboriginal kids. When I left, there were only 24 out of a, a population of, of, of six or 700. But I've always been very involved with Aboriginal people and South Sea Islanders because where I lived in Tweed Heads, where I had my boat, um, that was what they call the Ukri Bar Passage in Water Street. And that was the sort of gathering area of those people. And we lived there. And so they were all my friends. And so there was no no big deal to me. A lot of saltwater Aboriginal people are massively into fishing too, aren't they? Oh, they all know the tricks. And and I still go back and I still see them now. But, yeah, so when I went into the school and they were always searching for someone to be a coordinator for the Aboriginal kids in school, well, that was me. I'm ready. I said, oh, I'll do that as long as you want me to. And and I've always enjoyed their company and, and uh, hopefully I've been able to well, all I ever did was to impress on them how important it was to use this opportunity to, to and don't leave school early. Go as far as you possibly can. And then I always said that your culture is, is uh, vital and so I always impressed on the importance of their culture. You had uh, some kids, you had a daughter and then Jodie and then your son Ben was born. When, when did you suspect after Ben was born that there might be something a bit wrong? Uh, pretty much when I first saw him. His toes were sort of a bit tangled and, and his little pot barely. And I asked the doctors and they said, oh, no, that'll all settle down because he was only days old and that's just part of the deal. So which I, that's okay. That's what'll happen. So no worries. But it didn't settle down? No, no. How long did it take for you to get some kind of diagnosis as to what might be wrong with him? Well, we sort of, we were in limbo really because we knew something was going on, but we weren't informed as to what was going on because he was being looked at and being tested and and at the age of two he was incorrectly diagnosed as as being a sufferer from what's called Hurler's syndrome which he never had it was a, just an incorrect diagnosis and it's under an umbrella called MPS or mucopolysaccharidosis and there are eight syndromes under that disorder and Hurler's is quite severe 
Now, these are extremely rare genetic disorders, is that right? Extremely. And what Ben actually was suffering from was Hunter's syndrome. And what is Hunter's syndrome? Simply put, is that the inability to take toxins, the body toxin, when the body functions, it builds up natural toxins within, which are eliminated naturally except for those who have the inability to do that. So the toxins continually to build and build and build within the system until the body can't take it any longer. So there is no cure. And at that stage, when we found out about Ben, there were 43 cases in Australia and there was one in New Zealand. So we didn't, we didn't know anything about it. What was his life expectancy set at? Well, when we were told, he said we'd never reach his teenage years and uh, he died at 21. I suppose that meant you had to become a part-time or almost full-time carer for him. Did you have to quit work for a while? Oh, well, I quit work. At, at, the, at um, 49 years of age, I could see that this um, we were getting further and further down the track. Up until then, we lived as close to a normal life as we possibly could because that's what Ben wanted anyway. And Ben wasn't aware, I never ever told him, what his future held. He just had such a positive attitude towards life that to, to do that I thought would have really put his fire out. So I, And because no one else was going to come and tell him, because no one else knew what it was all about because it was so rare. And so we just progressed through life as if, you know, we've got a few problems there, mate, but let's soldier on. Did he go to school? Yeah, went to year 12 and uh, the, the town that sort of adopted him, the, the town of Nelson Bay and the outer areas adopted Ben and everybody knew him and uh, he was uh, so popular, um, so respectful and loving, very loving person. Given that you're a sport mad guy being a PE teacher, was he able to in any way participate in any kind of sport despite his condition? Well, he tried everything. He, he really? Yeah, surfing, snorkeling and rugby. He always wanted to play rugby because I'm a bit of a rugby freak. And uh, he have, had a hearing aids and then he had um, a headgear on top of the hearing aids, which was quite odd, but he was only quite short. That's part of the deal. He was very short. And I didn't even want him to play, but there was no way on earth I could stop him. I couldn't stop him. And as... The, the, the disorder progressed and there was less and less things that he could physically do, I really didn't know which direction to take him because he was a high achiever, but he was let down by his circumstances. But he was introduced to bench pressing, which was quite extraordinary because neither he nor I were ever in, interested in such a thing. However, he started bench pressing and he become a New South Wales disabled bench press champion under 56 kilo and he was benching he was only 24 kilos but uh, I'm sorry he was 44 kilo and he was bench pressing 80 kilo which is nearly twice his body weight now anyone who's in that game will know that anyone who can do that is quite an achievement very very few people can do it he had to press 88 kilo to double his weight so he come to me after a while and he said, I can't do any more. He said, I'm going as best I can. He said, I think the best answer to this is if I lose four kilo in my weight and go down to 40 kilo, then I will have achieved what I'm trying to achieve. <laughs> he had this amazing ability to, and of course he had a big smile on his face and yeah, we were so proud of him. He lost his sight and his hearing and what sort of challenges did he face towards the end? Uh, it was becoming increasingly difficult. 
He had heart problems. Every single organ in the body, apart from the brain, he remained incredibly sharp. But everything else was just falling down around him. Once he was gone, what, what could you do? Well, that that, that just that was really could test you. Um, and the, the hours that were spent, vacant hours, which gave us far too much time to think, I thought, well, this has just got to change because I don't want to wallow in in sadness for the rest of my life. It's still a very sad thing and my wife and I still are hurt by it. But I thought personally, my wife is a very hard worker and she she had her um, profession to pursue. But I had now, after I'd lost him, I'd been a carer for quite a few years. It doesn't sound like the right term, carer, because I was his best mate, basically. So we just spent the last few years very, very close together. But um, as, as the the years went by, I could see that that I had to do something for myself. Otherwise, I'd just be a miserable person. So then I started looking at to basically reinvent myself. And this is when I got right into writing books. So I'd write a book every couple of years. How long has it been since he died? 10 years. 10 years. I, I, I think that's unfathomable for me to, to lose a kid like that. I wonder how, how grief grief changes and evolves over 10 years like that. I don't suppose it ever goes away, but does it change the nature of it? No, not really. Mm. You know, it's every day. And anyone else in my position would know exactly the same. Well, there's a lot of people who have lost their children know exactly how I feel. It never, ever goes away. So instead, you put all this energy into into your writing and recreating these whole things and places and times and cultures that are that are gone now. I love that you do this. I think it's I think it's so important to do this. I I think it's terrible in Australia we tend to concrete over these eras gone by. You wrote that book on Broughton Island people, like I was talking about before, and more recently this book on people of the Port Stephens era era, the fishermen there. Tell me about these people that you wanted to write about in Old Salt. No. Oh, they I knew most of them. Before I started, because I'd been so involved in fishing and because I'd been involved in teaching, I taught there for 27 years. And so I knew everybody. So you'd done half the research before you even started over the, the decades you'd been there. Exactly. I, I knew I, I knew half the book before I started to write it. because, I, And I, just to be in their company um, was always a, a bit of a laugh for me because they are really characters, real characters. They're tough people too, aren't they? Mm, my word. Tough as nails. Yep. Yeah, and and so were their women. Their women are very dignified and supporting of them, but by golly, they did it tough, Kurt, too, the ladies in their lives, because they had to sort of keep them on the straight and narrow, which was an impossibility, and they'd get into so much trouble, and they were big drinkers. Big, They work hard, drink hard, and play hard. That's what they did. Did they make much money doing what they did? No, but that didn't matter. That didn't matter. the life was so good. It was a lifestyle, past down through the family to the next generation. That's what happened. And the whole thing is changing now because the opportunities for their children, for fishermen's children, are far greater now. They can look at universities and fields, which are probably easier than fishing, um, which could be far more lucrative. And so the, the whole fabric of, of uh, the fishing generations do is starting to fall apart to a degree. You know, these days, when people go fishing on an industrial basis, the ships are big. There's, you know, it's a whole industrial process. But what what was fishing like for those people in those times at the earlier part of the twentieth century? What did they fish with? Well, again, it, we go back to earlier discussion. There was no ice, 
So without an ice, without ice, you haven't got an industry. But ice come in around about 1917. So refrigeration. Refrigeration. Yeah, yeah, there's none of that. If there's none of that, you struggled to to send your fish to the market, so the most of the fish was sold locally or to the Chinese who would salt them and and uh, dry them in the sun. So there was nothing really there. There was no money to be made there. It was only when ice became available that that you could then ship off your uh, fish to Newcastle and Sydney, and Sydney markets. So that was vital to the whole industry. But um, yeah, so I followed all the ways and methods that these fellows uh, used to catch their fish. And then I—that's what really intrigued me. There are other, you know, th- things that are around the fishing as well, like the uh, the boat builders and the lighthouse keepers. Mm. What did you know about the the life of those people? Who who went to live in those lighthouses? Were they single men, or did they bring their families? What was that all about? Ah, uh, well, there's a, a lighthouse right in front of our house at Fingal, the, the outer light, it's called, and and I uh, had studied quite in depth, the lighthouse keepers out there, going back to the 1860s when the light was first established. And they uh, just lived a pretty tough existence out there. But interestingly enough, in the 18, early 1890s, a huge storm called the Maitland Gale blew, which a, a very thin finger of land that connected this outer light to the mainland. In fact, it had a mainland, but then it became an island. It became an island. So the people on there no longer lived attached to the mainland. Then they now lived on an island. And, and this, uh, what's called the Fingal Spit, comes and goes depending upon the weather. But uh, some of the things that happened on that island in that hundred years, uh, wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. Tell me. Well, they grew bananas out there. They had orchards out there. They had milking cows. And, they, and three families would live out there to, to man the lighthouse and they'd do eight-hour shifts, three eight-hour shifts and there's your 24 hours. So if one family had worked certain times. and But one of the interesting stories happened during the Depression years when a fellow called Arthur Murdoch uh, travelled out there and, and shoveled shell grit into bags to send off to the oyster, to the um, chicken farmers, which would strengthen the, the eggshells of, of the chooks. <laughs> and uh, he... Um, Feeding seashells to, to, ch- to cro- chooks. Yeah, grit. Right. Shell grit. So the, 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 the chook eggs don't shatter as easily. That's right. Yeah, makes, makes firmer eggs. And they'd also... And so this man, Arthur Murdoch, and he wrote a book called Sheer Grit. Uh, and if you get a chance <laughs> to have a look at it, it's a great little book. So what are you writing now? Uh, well, I finished a book a fortnight ago, which will um, come out in October this year. And the one I've just completed is on, it's called Oyster Man. And there's a subtitle, The Biggest Oyster Farm in the World, which Port Stevens was. In the world? In the world. When was this? In the late uh, 1940s. In 1949, it was written about as the biggest oyster farm in the world. And what happened to it? Well, there was a tragedy, an absolute tragedy, which has shaken families to this day, to this very day. They've, uh, their scars have not healed in most cases. Uh, and that was in 1984, 85, uh, a non-Indigenous species uh, or an infiltrator uh, came in through their heads and in the form of what's called Pacific Oyster. And the Pacific oyster, the spat of the Pacific oyster spread right throughout Port Stephens and started to grow over the top of what uh, was then the uh, Sydney rock oyster, which is what 
Port Stephens earned its reputation on. So here this foreign invader, uh, like rabbits or cane toads or whatever else, that's what arrived. And then there was a major split in the community. Some, half of them said, look, it's already arrived. Uh, It is edible. It grows quicker. It grows larger. Let's market it. The other half said, we've got to get rid of this. This has got to be eradicated and get rid of it out of our system and let's go back to the Sydney rock oyster. Well, that caused a lot of problems. And what happened in the end? Well, what happened in the end, after a lot of dithering by the state governments and uh, bureaucrats who were totally confused by the whole issue and didn't know what to do, basically, what happened was that, yes, you can uh, grow and sell Pacific oysters. And that happens till today. Fishing. It's obviously much more for you than just what's on the end of the hook, isn't it, John? Oh, most certainly. Fishing, there's a lot more to fishing than catching fish. What is it? It's being there. It's being there. And it's just a a really a a great excuse to join in and be part of of what's going on around you. I love fish. Fishing, it's changed. It's gone through a massive revolution. Fishing is nothing like it was when I was young. And my philosophy on fishing is probably a dinosaur's philosophy and that you go and catch what you want and you stop fishing. Now you've got all sorts of people catching fish that they don't really need and they don't eat uh, and then catching them and letting them go, that, that's okay. Um, why, 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 why is what you're talking about dinosaur fishing? It seems like way of the future because you're talking about sustainable fishing, aren't you? That's, that's my great issue. My, my great issue, and the Aboriginal people did this for thousands and thousands of years, my, uh, the way I see fishing is that if you're not, go- if you're not going to eat the fish, don't, certainly don't kill it if you're not going to eat it. And, uh, and once you've got enough to eat, don't catch any more. So really, it's not, it's not rocket science. And be very, very uh, aware that sustainability is the major, major issue and that the natural resources must be protected and, and the balance can be reached. Oh, it's been wonderful speaking to you, John. Thank you so much for being my guest. It's been a pleasure. It's now 10 years since I had that delightful conversation with John Stinker Clark. A decade later, John's still deeply involved with Port Stephen's life. He hosts history tours to Broughton and Fingal Islands. He's a regular on ABC Radio. He's got a column in his local paper. And he's always writing or researching a new local history book. And he says he still has plenty of time to go fishing. Stinker's latest book is for children, and it's called Banjo the Brem. He and his wife are also lobbying for a museum in Port Stephens. And you can find more details on his website, www.stinker.com. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.